We're turning back to where we have been for quite a number of Wednesday nights, to the Gospel of Matthew and to the chapter 6. Matthew and the chapter 6, beginning at verse 5. Matthew 6 and verse 5. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. When thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. Thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Amen. We know the Lord will add His blessing to His Word read in our hearing. We'll bow again briefly in prayer. Father, we pray for all that cannot be here tonight, and we know there are some taking a few days off. We know some are on enforced layoffs because they're lying in hospital right now or ill at home. And we pray for our brother Stanley Manis in hospital, for Mrs. Sheeran as well, for Tommy Little, for Georgie Jemfries, and all others that at this moment are led aside, feeling the burden of the day. But Lord, we thank Thee for those who were here tonight, and we pray that I will be pleased to speak a word that is in season unto our hearts. May we be challenged, may we be comforted, and may we know the choice visitation of the Lord our God from on high. We pray in Jesus' name and to thine eternal glory alone. Amen. What we're looking tonight is at the second half of verse 12, Matthew 6 and verse 12, and forgive us our debts. The last time that we dealt with the passage here, that's what we took, that 
set of five words in our English Bible, and then the next five as we forgive our debtors. There are some questions that we all need to ask ourselves when we come to the topic, the forgiveness of sins. And of course, we would take it as read coming into a prayer meeting night for people that are wanting to seek the face of God whose sins have been forgiven, then this question hardly needs to be asked. But who can tell? Sometimes you will have a person coming to a prayer meeting, and I have no one unsaved people to come in the past, and they have found the Lord at a prayer meeting. Not impossible, but very, very possible. Have I experienced the forgiveness of sins? Another question, do I bring my sins to the Lord on a day-to-day basis, do it dealing, so that He can wash away as His analogy and His picture was the dust that we accrue from walking in this world and sinning on a daily basis so that the Lord can come and cleanse and purge us again? And then am I experiencing the joy and the intimacy with God that comes out of a daily confession of sin? Because if the daily confession of sin does not take place, then the channel can very quickly become clogged up. There is no doubt that forgiveness of sins is an indescribably blessed thing. And therefore, if it is an indescribably blessed thing, it follows that confession of sin to the Lord is an indescribably vital practice. We cannot overemphasize it. The Greek word that we have confess over in 1 John, the chapter 1 and the verse 9, homologium, it means to say the same thing. And you'll identify there right away with logio, logos, the word, saying the same thing. In other words, we're coming, and in prayer, as we're confessing our sins to God, what we are saying is, Lord, thine analysis of my sin is absolutely spot on. Thou art a just God, a true God, speaking righteousness, and therefore I have no argument with thine assessment of my life. So we are saying the same thing as God is saying. We are agreeing with Him as we come confessing our sin. Now, the last time out on this topic, I took a prayer that I generally don't do, and that is a form of words that is written down, and I said we were taking it from a book, The Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. There's one thing about the book that I would love to change, and no other thing would I see fit to change in it. I'd love to know just who each prayer, which Puritan preacher, each prayer has been prayed or said out by. But the prayers are anonymous, so some Puritan preacher uh, prayed in this fashion, and I have little doubt that they all pretty much prayed in a very similar way. And it's a good one to reflect on. And I'm just going to give it again as we move into the topic today. O God of grace, Thou hast imputed my sin to my substitute, and hast imputed His righteousness to my soul, clothing me with a bridegroom's robe, decking me with jewels of holiness. But in my Christian walk, 
I am still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My penitential tears are so much impurity. My confessions of wrong are so many aggravations of sin. My receiving the Spirit is tinctured with selfishness. And so he comes to the point where he cries, I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. I have no robe to bring to cover my sins, no loom to weave my own righteousness. I am always standing clothed in filthy garments, and by grace I'm always receiving change of raiment. For thou dost always justify the ungodly. I am always going into the far country and always returning home as a prodigal, always saying, Father, forgive me, and thou art always bringing forth the best robe. Every morning, let me wear it. Every evening, return in it. Go out to the day's work in it. Be wound to death in it. Be married in it. Stand before the great white throne in it. Enter heaven in it, shining as the sun. Then he concludes this prayer by saying, Grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, the exceeding wonder of grace. And so his prayer is a prayer of confession from beginning to end. And that surely we have found to be a vital part of our own individual prayer life. However, in addition to this list of questions about forgiveness, are we not only asking forgiveness for our own sins before the Lord, but are we in addition to that earnestly, wholeheartedly forgiving others? And that's what's tackled by the second half in Matthew 6 and verse 12, and forgive us our debts, all that we've said up to the point is covered by that, as we forgive our debtors. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. First of all, the interpretation and also the illustration of this particular phrase. What does our Lord mean here? And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What's he saying? Do we really need to ask? Is it not blatantly obvious? As we forgive our debtors. In the Greek, they're using a past tense, the aorist tense, and it's forgive us our debts as we have forgiven others. Now get the context and the thread of thought that is going through here. In the middle of this prayer for forgiveness of sins, here is our Lord telling us, you need to plead like this, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven others. The thought is 
before we can ever think of seeking forgiveness for our own sins before the face of God, we should already have forgiven those who have sinned and, of course, repented against us. That text has to be read in connection with two later verses. In the same chapter, just dropping down a few verses to verse 14 and 15 of Matthew 6, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Notice what's happening here. In all of the other petitions, they're self-standing, self-contained, not elaborated upon. No further explanation is given. Give us this day our daily bread. End off. But here, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Then we keep reading about this subject. Not only where we have it in the initial verse, in verse 12, but again, our Savior comes back to that in 14, and back to that in verse 15. It's an important topic, and it needs further emphasis. And so he emphasizes it. Before we appear before God, to ask Him to wash our feet, we must ensure that we have ourselves forgiven others. Somebody might say, well, sure, I go to the house of God all the time. I read the Bible, I pray, I attend, and I participate in all the meetings. But, you know, I don't really have the joy that I used to have. I miss out on being used by God. I feel myself sometimes drifting into that terrible state where I'm becoming impervious and hardened to the Word of God. It's not impacting me the way it did. It's not getting through to my heart in the way that it used to. I know that my life is not all that it should be. What's the remedy for that? Some will say, well, you know that person, you need to pray more. You need to read the Bible more. You need to read a commentary along with the Bible or a devotional thought or two along with the Bible as well. You need to, in fact, Go to a class that talks about spiritual growth, because if you've stagnated, if you're becoming hard, it's growth that you need. Well, all of that is true. But it could be the case, it could be the case, that the real problem of the person who was lost out on their joy with God, their buoyancy in the spiritual experience is that they are not confessing their sins in the way that they should. That they're not going, Lord, I admit that I am sinning. Here are my sins. Purify me from them. And then some will undoubtedly say, but I am already doing that. I do confess my sins. I do it every day, but I still have lost much of my joy. Maybe, maybe that person needs to focus on the fact that our Savior is drawing us to here, that confession is not everything that is necessary. They also need to make sure that they have forgiven others. One preacher said, by not forgiving others, you short-circuit your spiritual life. 
In the days when London and many parts in England were flocking to hear the preaching of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he was the key preacher in England in his lifetime. Over in America, they were going to hear Henry Ward Beecher. Beecher said, and he used this great illustration on the topic that we're on tonight, he said, let me saw off a branch from one of the trees that is now budding in my garden, and all summer long there will be an ugly scar where the gash has been made. But by next autumn it will be perfectly covered over by the growing, and by the following autumn it will be hidden out of sight. And in four or five years, it'll only be a slight scar to show what it has been. And in ten or twenty years, you would never suspect there had ever been an amputation on that tree. Trees know how to overgrow their injuries and hide them. And love does not wait so long as trees do. What's he saying? Anybody who was working in their Christian life off the basis that we should be working out of a deep, strong love for the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be in a much greater hurry to forgive than trees are. This isn't my recommendation. It's our Lord's. Matthew 6 and 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then 14 and 15 that we have already read. So if we're lacking joy, if we're not reaching levels of fulfillment, satisfaction in our Christian life, if something is awry and amiss, then I suggest let's examine at this level, am I forgiving others? J. Oswald Sanders said, Jesus is here stating a principle in God's dealing with His children. He deals with us as we deal with others. He measures us by the yardstick we use on others. The prayer is not, forgive us, because we forgive others, but, notice, forgive us as we forgive others others. And that is very significant. Other passages in Scripture that teach the same thing. Luke 6 and verse 38, given it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over, shall man give into your bosom, for with the same measure that ye meet, with all it shall be measured to you again. Then we have in 2 Corinthians 9 and the verse 6 these words, Paul is saying, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. The measure that we give out is the measure we can expect here in return. God is dealing with us in the way that we deal with Him. We receive a return in our investment into His kingdom, and the same is true. About confessing our sins and seeking forgiveness, He is saying here, I'll deal with you in the way that you will deal with others. So am I forgiving? Are you forgiving? 
If we're not, then we can't expect that forgiveness from the God of heaven, and we'll be going through the world with unwashing, muddied feet. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Does that sound like a good exchange? Is that a good deal? It's the one our Lord insists upon. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So the interpretation of this phrase, and then secondly, the incentive behind this phrase. It's vital that we forgive others, and let me give a number of reasons why it is. Number one, it's a characteristic mark of being a child of God. Christians are identified as those who forgive. Even the world knows that, and the world expects that. In Matthew 5 and verse 43, we have the rabbinical tradition that the rabbis among the Jews would have been teaching, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But our Lord, as He fleshes out the law right through that chapter in Matthew 5, He tells them, but that's not my maxim. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. And so it is a characteristic of saints of God to forgive as we ourselves have been forgiven. The hymn writer cried, Forgiven, I can now forgive my brother. Forgiven, I reach out to touch his hand, and we should not ever lose sight of how much our Father has forgiven us that we in our pride and haughtiness should be standing back and saying, I'm going to let you stew in that. You can repent all you like to me. I am not taking your apology. Our Lord is saying, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's a characteristic mark of a child of God to forgive others. Not only that, it follows the example of Jesus Christ. In 1 John 2, in verse 6, we're told that if we claim to be abiding in Christ, then it follows that we need to be walking just as He walked, right in His footprints. How did He walk? Well, let me take you to Calvary to see how He walked there and at the cross. Those who drove the nails into his hands and feet, those who spat upon his face, those who mocked and scoffed at him, those who crushed onto his head that crown of thorns, he cries, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23 in the verse 34. Then Paul writing in Ephesians 4 and 32, he tells us, Forgive one another, and be ye kind one to another. 
tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you its likeness to Christ, that is the principle as to why we do it. He's our pattern for forgiveness. Then we think of Hebrews, and we had it on screen there, Hebrews 12, and verse 3 and 4. And if I'm going to say, well, can I really be expected to forgive my brother, my sister, someone else there that isn't even my spiritual brother or sister, can I go to X number of miles in terms of my forgiveness? Think of what our Lord endured. For consider Him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet, Paul reminds us, ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. He forgave us. And the pattern that he rolls out in front of your face and mine is simply this, forgive one another and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What does it do and why should we do it? It is a characteristic mark of a child of God. It shows conformity to Christ. We're following his example and it delivers our conscience so that it becomes free from nagging guilt when we need to forgive others, and we're holding back, and we're digging in our heels, and we're determining not to do it. Like it or not, guilt develops. Before David confessed his sinfulness in Psalm 32, he struggled in this whole area of guilt. Day and night, he says, God's hand was heavy upon him. His moisture turned into the drought of summer. His whole bodily fluids, he was sick here. In verse 3, he says, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. In 2 Corinthians 2, the verse 10 and the verse 11, we find that that unforgiving spirit just hands on a plate the advantage to the devil. We can't expect to be on victory ground. We can't expect to be climbing the mountaintop when we are refusing to forgive. Forgiving will free our conscience of guilt. It is a fact that those who cart around with them grudges, who bear and foster a bitter attitude against others, they end up using the boomerang. Not that the boomerang just does what we think it does, but to use the expression of a boomerang, they end up wounding themselves. As I. Macmillan wrote a book, None of These Diseases. And in the book, there's a chapter, and it's entitled, It's Not What You Eat, It's What Eats You. And those words point up an important truth. The father went to a doctor's surgery one day, and his 14-year-old son went along with him. The father said to the doctor, I only came to get more pills for my wife's colitis. Son had no idea what colitis was. 
conjured up something totally different in his mind. And he said, and obviously his mum was pretty much a merchant of friction. And he just said, who has mum been colliding with this time? None of these diseases. An unforgiving spirit frees a conscience from nagging guilt. And another reason, it delivers us from chastening. Where there is an unforgiving spirit, sin has got a flower bed that it can sprout weeds in. Take all the goodness away from the flowers. Cause the weeds to grow tall and flourish. Sin thrives, and where sin is thriving, chastening appears. Hebrews 12 and 6 expressly says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is directing a stinging rebuke to those in the church in Corinth, those that were showing animosity one towards the other, even sitting down together at the Lord's table, being bitter one against the other. And as a direct result of that maliciousness, they took on maladies. They became sick. Some of them even died. James 2 and 13, it lays out the answer in very stark relief. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. What a verse that is. No wonder the power of the church of Jesus Christ in this day is short-circuited. One of the main problems, there are too many unresolved conflicts between the people of God. Is that not why we have the text we have tonight in Matthew 6 and 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So we've looked at the interpretation of this phrase, the incentive behind this phrase, and finally the implementation of this phrase. Always the hardest part. We can listen, 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 listen. But to put into practice what we hear, well, that's always, always the challenge. The implementation as we forgive our debtors. In other words, what we're talking about is how do we deal with a grudge that develops? How should we resolve it? Well, we'll be practical. Take it to the Lord and confess it for what it is, sin. When we feel bitter towards someone, we should pray, Lord, this is the way I feel towards so-and-so. I confess my sin and repent of it. Take it to God. Confess it as sin. Go to the person and confront it there. That's where it becomes particularly difficult, where the spirit of pride begins to swell and it's being pumping up 
indignation within us. And we're saying, I wouldn't go to him. I wouldn't go near her. No way. They did this. They did that. Not a chance. But if you want to know spiritual joy, that if the two of you are not to be eaten up with bitterness, then it must be done. What do we want? Forfeiting our joy in believing? At the expense of just harboring and nurturing and getting the old watering can out every day and giving a good dose of growth to this grudge? The method our Lord led down, He gives us the outline in Matthew 18, verse 15 to 17. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall hear third stage, if he shall neglect to hear them, Tell it on to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be on to thee as an heathen man and a publican. When someone has sinned against us, approach them. And if your approach and your attempt at reconciliation fails, take some others along with you. Witnesses, and if that hits the rocks, then tell the situation to the church. Peter was very quick to respond here, and in Matthew 18 and verse 21, he asked, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? And I'm sure he thought, as we would, that, you know, if we do that, we are really stretching ourselves. Seven times? That's a lot of endurance. That's incredible patience. I can't even conceive of going that far. But Jesus told him, you need to forgive when that person repents indefinitely, infinitely. Verse 22 of Matthew 18, Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven, four hundred and ninety and more, a big round figure to emphasize, keep on forgiving. Keep getting the slate properly wiped. And the whole scenario is illustrated again by our Lord, because He does in Matthew 18, What he does here in Matthew chapter 6, speaks about it in verse 12, goes again in 14 and 15. And having spoken here and responded to Peter's question, again he paints another picture. And in verse 23 of Matthew 18, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. That's an incredible amount of money. Very difficult to conceive the kind of amount. Back there, they worked in denarii, 
pennies, one talent, and we have 10,000 of them here, 10,000 talents, one talent was 6,000 denarii. And as we find in Scripture, you did a full day's work and you got one penny, one denarius. Therefore, by that calculation and working under that system, the servant to this king would need to work six days a week for 1,000 weeks, more than 19 years, to earn one talent. But that wasn't what his debt was. It wasn't one. It was 10,000. And so he would need to be working for him to repay the debt at this particular rate, 190,000 years. Incredible and totally impossible. Verse 25, though, says, But for as much as he had not to pay, couldn't pay it, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had, and payment, that is some kind of a payment, to be made. In our money, we're probably talking just shy of seven million pounds. The only assets he had are his wife and his children, and just to recoup some of the value that he owed, the king was willing to sell those back into slavery. But what do we read in verse 26 of Matthew 18? The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Well, he knew, the king knew that would be impossible, and normally a king would be expected to just seethe with fury at that kind of a response. But then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgive the debt. Now, that's an illustration that we have to ramp right up out of the natural realm because it's impossible in nature to do this, to pay off this kind of debt. But the king is God. We are the wicked servants who have run up unpayable debts. And yet He forgives us because He is moved with compassion, because of His amazing grace and tremendous compassion. However, and in this story that our Lord told, there's a sting in the tail. Verse 28 of Matthew 18 tells us the same servant, the same servant went out and find one of his fellow servants which owed him an hundred pence. So a hundred days' work. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And because he couldn't, he went and put him into prison till he should pay the debt. So 31, when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thy wicked servant, I forgive thee all that debt, because thou desirest me, 
shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I, that's the important clause for tonight, even as I had pity on thee, and as Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him, so likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. The servant in the second case, owed only one six hundred thousandth part of the debt that the fellow who had been forgiven this incredible amount had owed the king. Now, our Lord is giving this illustration because He's teaching us if we want to receive God's forgiveness but are not willing to forgive someone else, then we fit right here in His picture. Our face would be superimposed upon it. Is the Savior speaking of us? Are we holding grudges? What about the great mercy? that we can't calculate, that no one could ever fathom, that we have received from the Lord. Have we forgotten that? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Thomas Manton, so we have the name of the Puritan preacher who said this. He stated, there is none so tender to others as they which have received mercy themselves, that know how gently God hath dealt with them. Another quote by Lord Herbert, He who cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. And that's why our Lord is saying, don't break the bridge you're going to need it. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. When the great 19th century Scottish author, Robert Louis Stevenson and his family were living and working in the South Seas, it was the daily habit that Robert Louis Stevenson brought his family together for a time of worship, and at the time that they had worshipped, just at the end, every single day, they concluded by saying together the Lord's Prayer. One day, Stevenson got halfway through the prayer. Then he got up and he walked away. Now, his health was always on a knife edge, and so his wife assumed that he'd taken ill. She asked him, was there anything wrong? He said, I am not fit to pray the Lord's Prayer today. And there may be occasions when we are not fit to pray it. And if we are coming to the throne of grace, begging for 
personal forgiveness, but not willing to forgive others. Then it's a prayer we're not fit to pray. And forgive us our debts as, as we forgive our debtors. What depths and challenges there are in this prayer. Let's bow in prayer.